This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 11, the 2015 AHA AAFP Pain Management Guidelines for Dogs and Cats. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey secondary survey analgesia fluids shock trauma we've got it covered and now here's your host never afraid to bring the jibber jabber it's shaylin jasani hello everyone and welcome to the veterinary ecc small talk podcast with me shaylin jasani thanks for lending me your ears and your gray matter once again In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing the 2015 AHA AAFP pain management guidelines for dogs and cats. Before that, as always, I'd like to start by saying thank you to the people who have taken the time to rate and or review the podcast in iTunes. This week, my thanks go to the emergency vet from Germany and to Zozub from Australia. Zozub says... Where has this podcast been? I wish it was here earlier. A wonderful selection of topics that are succinct and enlightening. Shalem provides a great mix of review of the critical evidence-based knowledge with his added clinical experience and personal observations. His explanation of sometimes mind-bending concepts keeps things simple and easy to understand. For myself, I really gain a lot from his sections on risk versus benefit analysis when comparing different treatment ideologies. This podcast is easy to listen to and has a logical structure that flows well and encourages dialogue with listeners. Thanks a bunch. So thanks very much for those lovely ratings and reviews. And as always, if anyone else feels motivated to rate or review the podcast in iTunes, you know that I will be very grateful. The other thing is that since the last episode, I have actually made available some items of clothing printed with the ECC slogans that the community voted for. Just to remind you, these were ECC, Excellence, Caring, Compassion, and ECC, Anytime, Anywhere, Always There. So there's a selection of hoodies with or without zips and some t-shirts. These items are only going to be available until the 12th of March. Um, Now, look, I chose a site where they will take care of the printing and the shipping because I really cannot get into that at the moment myself. But one of their rules is that in order for any campaign to be printed, you do have to sell a minimum number of 10 items or basically no one who ordered in that campaign actually gets anything. I'm also personally making virtually no money on any of these sales. So why not treat yourself, show off your commitment to ECC and help support the Veterinary ECC Small Talk project. And I will include the link in the show notes to where you can buy those items from. Okay, so let's get on with today's episode. The 2015 AHA AAFP Pain Management Guidelines for Dogs and Cats have been published in the latest issue of the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. AHA is the American Animal Hospital Association and AAFP is the American Association of Feline Practitioners. 
The guidelines are unfortunately not free open access, so I thought I would present some of their key points for you in this episode. As always, I've also included some of my own thoughts and hopefully added some value. I can't go through everything they have written about in the guidelines, and so I've chosen to focus on aspects that I think are of greatest relevance to ECC practice, where we are typically most concerned with acute and short-term pain rather than more chronic pain management. Obviously, this is not always the case, but I needed to filter the guidelines to not end up with a crazily long episode. And I've also broken the main take-home messages down into 10 separate but interrelated points. These guidelines represent an update to the last set of guidelines that they published in 2007. And the authors say that the recommendations of the guidelines task force are evidence-based insofar as possible and otherwise represent a consensus of expert opinion. Obviously, we need to bear the insofar as possible bits of that statement in mind. And I will, of course, include a link to the paper in the show notes so that you can look it up. And if you have access to it, then obviously download it and read it in full yourselves. So the first point is that pain management must be central to our clinical practice. And this is something that you all know, but it never hurts to reiterate that pain management should be central to what we do in clinical practice rather than some sort of afterthought. For all of us, it should be part of our initial assessment of our emergency patients and something that we address during their initial stabilization. And this is for a number of reasons, not just that it improves the patient's welfare, which is obviously our ethical and professional obligation, but it also has implications for clinical morbidity progression, recovery, and potentially outcomes. Uncontrolled pain has both adverse psychological and physiological consequences. The second point is that pain physiology should be considered when implementing our pain management. In the article, they start by discussing some of the physiology around pain, the pain pathways, and the types of pain. I'm not going to get into that in too much detail here, But one thing they do point out is that the pain response is unique to each individual. And this is really important because it emphasizes the need for us to try as much as possible to individualize our pain management. It is okay to have a protocol that we implement in all patients with painful condition X. And that is clearly much better than no pain management protocol at all. But ideally, we should adjust and amend our protocol based on the individual patient's response. And in that regard, it is also very important that staff members communicate with each other, both verbally and in the medical record, so that, for example, at the handover between shifts, information about each individual patient's pain response and the management that they need, that information is communicated between staff members. The other thing is the authors say that pain is the endpoint of nociceptive input and can only occur in a conscious animal. However, there is involvement of autonomic pathways and deeper centers of the brain involved with emotion and memory. Hence, pain is a multidimensional experience. It is not just what you feel, but also how it makes you feel. Underlying causes of pain can be classified as nociceptive pain, inflammatory pain, 
or pathological pain. Nociceptive pain occurs when peripheral neural receptors are activated by noxious stimuli such as surgical incisions, trauma, heat or cold. Inflammatory pain results gradually from activation of the immune system in response to injury or infection. And pathological pain, which is also called maladaptive pain, occurs when pain is amplified and sustained by molecular, cellular and microanatomic changes, collectively termed peripheral and central hypersensitization, or what some people refer to as wind-up. Sensitization is characterized by hyperalgesia, allodynia, expansion of the painful field beyond its original boundaries, and protracted pain. And remember that as far as wind-up is concerned, anticipatory analgesia provided prior to the pain onset is more effective than analgesia provided once pain has occurred. In the context of emergency patients that already have moderate to severe pain at presentation, the aim should be to get their pain under control as soon as possible and to then try and keep them as pain-free as we can. And the authors also mention neuropathic pain, which they say can be considered a disease of the central nervous system. And frankly, neuropathic pain is a pain in the backside, and I'm saying that, not the authors. Neuropathic pain can be a real nightmare to make ground with, and I'm sure if any of you have personally suffered from neuropathic pain, then you know exactly what I mean. So the third point is that the patient's behaviour is key to pain assessment. How many times has someone said to you, being a vet or a vet nurse is much harder than being a doctor or a human nurse because your patients can't speak to you, or words to that effect? Our patients can't communicate with us verbally, so our approach to pain management has to be based on anticipating when pain is likely to be present, regular assessment, and at times making assumptions. And to be fair, this is often something that does have to happen in the context of human medicine as well. So where you've got, for example, neonates or pediatric patients, or indeed adult patients that are in a different condition, which means that they're not able to actually communicate their pain status. The authors say in the paper that it is now accepted that the most accurate method for evaluating pain in animals is not by physiological parameters, but by observations of behaviour. I really hope that none of you listening to this still think that tachycardia, for example, is a very useful means of deciding whether a patient is painful. First of all, there are many potential causes of tachycardia, and often it can be multifactorial. So tachycardia is not very specific for pain. And secondly, an animal with a heart rate within normal limits can most definitely still be painful. So lack of tachycardia is not very sensitive for pain. Now, of course, it can be helpful as part of our overall pain assessment. But in general, physiological parameters should not be used as the sole means of pain assessment. So it's cool to have them as part of your overall assessment and part of the overall picture. But to rely solely on a physiological parameter, now that is where the thinking is flawed. And I guess I'm stressing this point because I have on various occasions in the past, heard anecdotally 
situations where somebody has asked for a patient to be able to have more analgesia and the clinician in charge has said, well, what's the heart rate? And the heart rate's been within normal limits. And despite the person being concerned that the patient's painful, no further analgesia was allowed to be given simply because the heart rate was within normal limits. So I apologize if I'm laboring the point, but I think it's well worth laboring. So we need to try to use our patient's behavior essentially as a means of nonverbal communication to try and learn to interpret their behavior as telltale signs of ongoing pain. Yes, our patients cannot communicate with us verbally, but what is their behavior telling us about their pain status? The authors say that because behavioral signs of pain are often overlooked or mistaken for other problems, the healthcare team must be vigilant in recognizing those anomalies in the total patient assessment. So the fourth point, which kind of leads on from the third point, is that pain scoring tools can be useful. One of the things that pain scoring tools try to accomplish is to improve objectivity in pain assessment and consistency between individuals. Personally, I think that as far as possible, the same individual should assess the same patient for the duration of their shift to try and remove inter-observer variability. And then, as I mentioned earlier, make sure that there is good communication at shift handover. But the other thing that pain scoring does, I think, is just to make sure that we're regularly actually assessing our patients. I think if we don't have some form of formalized pain monitoring included in our hospitalization plan with instructions on the kennel sheets, it can be easy to slip into a default of just carrying on with the same protocol. Pain management is meant to be a dynamic and interactive with adjustments as needed, but especially when it's busy, this can be overlooked. And I think by essentially forcing people to go through a pain scoring process, we ensure that a pain assessment is made regularly. I'm actually not going to get into any more details about the pain scoring tools that have been used um, and that they mention or refer to in this paper, but I may come back to that in a later episode and just talk about pain scoring in its own right. The authors say that although there is currently no gold standard method for assessing pain in dogs and cats, the guidelines task force strongly recommends utilizing pain scoring tools both for acute and chronic pain. It should be noted that those tools have varying degrees of validation, acute and chronic pain scales are not interchangeable, and canine and feline scales are not interchangeable. So the fifth point is that multimodal balanced analgesia is another key strategy in pain management. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this and I'm not going to labor the point. But essentially what we're saying here is that we often try to use analgesic agents from different classes with the intention of targeting multiple points in the pain pathways. Now we need to remember that many of the analgesic agents that we use clinically already work at different sites. But nevertheless, the idea is that by combining agents, we hope to be able to use lower doses of each individual drug and thereby minimize the potential for side effects associated with any single drug. Moreover, there is lots of suggestion that some analgesic combinations can work synergistically. 
So that means that the overall effect is greater than the sum of the effects that we would get if we had used each drug individually. And the sixth point is that opioids are the best analgesics in many emergency patients. The authors do not go into an in-depth overview of opioids, and I'm certainly not going to do that here. But I did want to repeat the point that they make, which is that opioids are the most effective drug class for managing acute pain. More specifically, the authors say that full mu agonists, so drugs such as methadone, morphine, hydromorphone, elicit greater and more predictable analgesia than partial mu agonists or kappa agonists. In dogs, the mu antagonist kappa agonist butorphanol, in particular, appears to provide limited somatic analgesia and a very short duration of visceral analgesia. I think that most people have stopped using butorphanol as an analgesic per se, and its role is now more in patients that need sedation. <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to comment on, though, was as far as buprenorphine is concerned, I think that there is consensus that buprenorphine is an effective analgesic agent and has the role in the management of mild to moderate and maybe even severe pain. <clears throat> there is some discussion about its relative merits in cats versus dogs and in different pain states, but overall I think there is consensus that it is a great addition to our drug arsenal. However, the one point that I always find myself making is with respect to the duration of its onset of action. Now, I imagine if you look hard enough, you will find one or more papers that contradicts this. But again, I think the general consensus is that it takes somewhere between 20 and 45 minutes for buprenorphine to reach its peak effect. I should say that I'm also not going to get into the debate about how the onset of action may vary a little bit between different routes of administration. But the point is that if you are presented with a patient that is moderately to severely painful, I'm never really sure why one would choose to use a drug that could take up to 45 minutes to be fully effective when a pure full myopioid will work much more quickly and much more predictably. I realize that not every practice stocks pure opioids, and that might be the reason, but otherwise I'm not sure what the rationale is. It can't be costs, at least not in the UK, because the pure opioids and buprenorphine are very similarly priced in many cases. And moreover, the pure opioids also offer other advantages that buprenorphine does not, but I'm not going to expand on that here. The seventh point is that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may be contraindicated in emergency patients. The authors say that the majority of conditions that cause pain have an inflammatory component. NSAIDs should be used for their central and peripheral effects in both dogs and cats after consideration of risk factors. <clears throat> there is no indication that any one of the veterinary approved NSAIDs is associated with any greater or lesser incidence or prevalence of adverse events. And actually, I think that their last point there is worth reiterating about there no being any evidence that, sorry, there not being any evidence that any one of the veterinary approved NSAIDs is essentially better than another. And I think that's worth reiterating because obviously it is not what drug reps would often have us believe. But actually, I wanted to emphasize the risk factors aspect of what they said. 
We know that NSAIDs can be very effective, and there is suggestion about their synergism with opioids in particular. But they may well be contraindicated in a fair number of emergency patients when we consider that NSAIDs are not meant to be used in patients that are hypovolemic or dehydrated or have significant gastrointestinal disease. Again, I'm not going to go into more detail here, but let's say you are presented with a cat that has suffered blunt trauma and is in shock with a clearly broken leg. Giving analgesia as soon as possible is clearly completely appropriate, but reaching for an NSAID at this stage is not. The guidelines then go on to say some things about local anesthetics, ketamine, systemic lidocaine, tramadol, and a variety of other agents, but I'm not going to go into any of that in more detail here. But the eighth point is don't overlook non-pharmacological measures. One of the other key take-home messages from these guidelines is that pain management is not all about drugs. The authors argue that, increasingly, evidence-based data and empirical experience justify a strong role for non-pharmacologic modalities for pain management. A number of those should be considered mainstream options and an integral part of a balanced, individualized treatment plan. Examples of non-pharmacologic treatments supported by strong evidence include, but are not limited to, cold compression, weight optimization and therapeutic exercise. Treatment options gaining increasing acceptance include acupuncture, physical rehabilitation, myofascial trigger point therapy and therapeutic laser. I should say that I would imagine that not everyone agrees with all of this and clearly I haven't personally gone into the evidence base insofar as it is available for interventions such as myofascial trigger point therapy and therapeutic laser. I am just presenting what the authors have concluded in the guidelines. But that said, I think it would be very hard to argue, for example, that physical rehabilitation is a good idea. The ninth point I want to make is one that's very close to my heart, and that is don't overlook TLC. I'm not going to name any names, but I have been mocked in the past by at least one colleague who shall remain nameless for saying that when it comes to patient care, it's all about the love. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit simplistic, but it is a good point well made. And the authors say that non-pharmacologic adjunctive treatment includes an appreciation of improved nursing care, gentle handling, caregiver involvement. There is strong evidence that the stress of hospitalization inhibits normal behaviors in animals including eating, grooming, sleeping, and elimination. Fear, anxiety, stress, and distress lead to hyperalgesia in both humans and animals. Strategies to mitigate hyperalgesia, therefore, include providing bedding, blankets, or clothing from home with familiar scents, allowing visitation of hospitalized pets, separating the dogs from the cats, placing cages so that animals do not see each other, using species-specific synthetic pheromones and proper handling, especially during procedures. All I have to add to that really is amen. Um, I'm sure that we can discuss and debate some of the points that they are making, but I think the overall take-home message is extremely valid. Okay, and then the last point, point 10, is a little bit off-topic really, but it's about conflicts of interest. 
And I wanted to mention the fact that increasingly veterinary papers and presentations are starting to acknowledge where any potential conflicts of interest may be present, which is something that is important when we come to evaluating any information from an evidence-based position. Now, with something like these guidelines, I think it is hard to argue with much of what has been said. But if, for example, a particular brand of NSAID or other type of therapy has been reviewed favorably, then we want to know whether any of the authors has a vested interest. In this paper, it says that these guidelines were supported by an educational grant to AHA from Abbott Animal Health, Elanco Companion Animal Health, Meriel and Zoetis, and that Mark Epstein has previously consulted for Abbott, Elanco and Meriel. Sheila Robertson is a key opinion leader for Novartis Animal Health. And these are two of the uh, contributing authors to these guidelines. Now, I'm not going to get into that and examine that any further here, and I'm not for a moment saying that there is any vested interest. But all I really wanted to do was to just make sure that we're all starting to pay attention to these things when we are considering um, papers and articles and so on from an evidence-based perspective. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this episode. As always, I hope that you have found it useful. I know that a number of people were keen for me to do an episode relating to pain management, so I hope it was interesting. As always, if you would like a copy of the transcript of this episode, then look out for the download link both on the website or in your podcast player. I will obviously, of course, also include the link to the paper in case any of you can access it. And also, I think it is probably okay for me to send a copy to a few people for educational purposes, so do get in touch if you would like a copy. As always, a request that if you have found this podcast interesting, please rate or review the series in iTunes. And lastly, before I sign off, just a reminder to please check out the items of clothing printed with the ECC slogans, and remember that they will only be available until the March the 12th, so don't wait too long to buy. And I hope it goes without saying that I really appreciate everyone who shows their support in this way by buying clothing items, but also in general, just increasing awareness about the Veterinary ECC Small Talk project. The next episode of this podcast will be in two weeks' time. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.